The following theories do not reflect those of the Aftermath and or staff. Hope you enjoy. are running a cycle on the news to where we almost become sick of them. Crimes and mysteries oftentimes end up never getting answered. Did the family get justice for their loved one? Was the accused even guilty? Welcome to the Aftermath, where we try to answer some of the mysteries we forgot about due to life smacking us in the face with more happenings. Forgotten Story The People of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson The Backstory Frogmen a few months before the murder, Simpson completed a film pilot for Frogmen, an adventure series similar to the A-Team. Simpson played the lead role of Bullfrog Burke, who led a group of former U.S. Navy SEALs. He received a, quote, fair amount of military training, including the use of a knife for Frogmen, and holds the knife to the throat of a woman playing the role of his daughter in one scene. The Murders On the evening of June 12, 1994, Brown and Simpson both attended their daughter Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere Middle School. Then they went out to eat, but they didn't include Simpson. One of the waiters at the restaurant was Ron Goldman, who had become close friends with Brown in recent weeks, but was not assigned to the Brown's family table. Brown and her children then went to Ben and Jerry's before returning to Brown's condominium in Bundy Drive, Brentwood. Meanwhile, Simpson ate takeout food from McDonald's with Cato Kalin, a bit part actor and family friend who had been given the use of the guest house at Simpson's estate. Rumors circulated that Simpson had been on drugs at the time of the murder, and the New York Post's Cindy Adams reported that the pair had actually gone to a local Burger King where a prominent drug dealer known as J.R. had admitted to selling them crystal meth. Brown's neighbors testified that they heard a dog barking from the outside throughout the night beginning around 10.15 p.m. Around 10.55 p.m., a dog walker who lived a few blocks away from Brown came across Brown's Akita dog barking in the street outside her home. The Akita, whose legs were covered in blood, followed the man home. He tried to walk the dog back to where he found it, but the dog resisted. Later on, he left the Akita with a neighboring couple who offered to keep the dog overnight. As the dog was agitated, the couple decided to walk it back to where it had been found. Around midnight, they reached the area where the Akita had been found. The dog stopped outside Nicole Brown's home, and the couple saw Brown's body lying outside of the house. Police were called to the scene and found Ron Goldman's body near Nicole Brown's. The front door to Brown's condominium was open when the bodies were found, but there were no signs that anyone had entered the building. By breaking in or otherwise, Brown's body was lying face down and barefoot at the bottom of the stairs leading to the door. The walkway leading to the stairs was covered in blood, but the soles of Brown's shoes were clean. Based on this evidence, investigators concluded that she was the first person to be killed and was the intended target. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck. There were a few defensive wounds on her hands. 
Goldman's body lay nearby, close to a tree and the fence. He had been stabbed multiple times in the body and neck, but there were relatively few defensive wounds on his hands, signifying a short struggle to the investigators. Forensic evidence from Los Angeles County Coroner alleged that the assailant stabbed Goldman with one hand while holding him in a chokehold. Near Goldman's body were a blue knit cap, a left hand, extra large Aries Isotoner light leather glove. Detectives determined that Goldman came to Nicole's house during her killing and that the killer killed him to silence Goldman and remove any witnesses. A trail of the assailant's bloody shoe prints led through the back gate. To the left of some of the prints, there were drops of blood from the assailant, who was apparently bleeding from the left hand. Measuring the distance between prints indicated the assailant walked rather than ran away from the scene. Arrest. After learning that Brown was the female victim, Los Angeles Police Department Commander Keith Bushy ordered detectives Tom Lang, Philip Van Adder, Ron Phillips, and Mark Furman to notify Simpson of her death and escort him to the police station to pick up the former couple's children, who were asleep in Brown's condominium at the time of the murders. The detectives buzzed the intercom at Simpson's estate for over 30 minutes, but received no response. They noted that Simpson's car was parked at an awkward angle, with its back end out more than the front, and that there was blood on the door, which they feared meant someone inside might be hurt. Vanatter instructed Furman to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the other three detectives to enter. The detectives would argue they entered without a search warrant because of the exigent circumstances, specifically out of fear that someone inside might be injured. Furman briefly interviewed Kalen, who told the detectives that the car belonged to Simpson and that earlier in the night he had heard thumps on his wall. In a walk around the premises to inspect what might have caused the thumps, Furman discovered a blood-stained right-hand glove, which was determined to be the mate of the left-hand glove next to the body of Goldman. This evidence is determined to be probable cause to issue an arrest warrant for Simpson. Philip testified that when he called Simpson in Chicago to tell him of Brown's murder, Simpson sounded very upset, but was oddly unconcerned about the circumstances of her death. Phillips noted that Simpson only asked if the children had seen the murder or Brown's body, but was not concerned about whether the assailants had harmed the children either. The police contacted Simpson at his home on June 13th and took him to Parker Center for questioning. Lang noticed that Simpson had a cut on his finger on his left hand that was consistent with where the killer was bleeding from, and asked Simpson how he got the cut. At first, Simpson claimed he cut his finger accidentally while in Chicago after learning of Brown's death. Lang had informed Simpson that blood was found inside his car. At this point, Simpson admitted that he had cut his finger on June 12th, but said he did not remember how. He voluntarily gave some of his own blood for comparison with the evidence collected at the crime scene and was released. On June 14th, Simpson hired lawyer Robert Shapiro, who began assembling Simpson's team of lawyers referred to as the Dream Team, Shapiro noted that an increasingly distraught Simpson had begun treatment for depression. The following day's preliminary results from DNA testing came back with matches to Simpson between June 16th and 17th at the San Fernando Valley home of friend Robert Kardashian. Shapiro asked several doctors to attend Simpson's purported fragile mental state. On June 17th, detectives recommend that Simpson be charged with two counts 
of first-degree murder with special circumstance of multiple killings after the final DNA results came back. The LAPD notified Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. that Simpson would have to turn himself in that day. At 9.30 a.m., Shapiro went to Kardashian's home to tell Simpson that he would have to turn himself in by 11 a.m., an hour after the murder charges were filed. Simpson told Shapiro that he wanted to turn himself in, to which the police agreed, believing that someone as famous as Simpson would not attempt to flee. The police agreed to delay Simpson's surrender until noon to allow him to be seen by a mental health specialist, the suicide note. At 5 p.m., Kardashian and one of his defense lawyers read Simpson's public letter. O.J. wrote what many believed was a suicide note. Before O.J. took off on the iconic low-speed chase in the white Bronco that's come to be the hallmark of the saga, he penned a bizarre note, read aloud by a lawyer and, and drink and friend Robert Kardashian to the press. Many thought the note was indeed a suicide note. O.J. denied it. The note said things like, Why do I end up like this? I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. I can't take that. I can't subject my children to that. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. The car chase that rocked the nation. After the note was read by Kardashian, Simpson went on the run. The infamous Bronco was driven by O.J.'s pal, Al Cowlings, who told police O.J. had a gun to his head. The chase was low speed. As a result, the Bronco was tailed by about 20 police cars. Police who spoke to O.J. over the cell phone said he was making strange comments like, quote, just gonna go with Nicole. The end of the chase was anticlimactic with the Bronco pulling into his Brentwood home where the police allowed him to go inside and have a conversation with his mother and a glass of orange juice. Meanwhile, in the car was a bag of cash a gun, passport, and a fake mustache. The chase literally stopped the nation. Meanwhile, the car chase was followed by more than 20 helicopters and was broadcast live on every major news network in our country. All regular programming was interrupted. The NBA finals were even paused to broadcast the chase. Apparently, around 95 million people tuned in to watch the police chase live. The chase was also good for business. Not only did everyone tune in to watch OJ run from the police, they ordered in while doing so. Domino's Pizza reported sales as big as the Super Bowl Sunday, their busiest day of the year, were in place in case of rioting. Water usage decreased nationwide, with the people unable to tear themselves away from the TV to make a cup of tea or even use the bathroom. The evidence, a glove with DNA from OJ, Nicole, and Ron Goldman's blood. The smashed another glove found at OJ's estate behind the guest house, where Kato Kalin heard the noises. Both, both gloves had blood on them. Ron Goldman, Nicole Brown Simpson, and OJ's blood. Police were called on nine separate occasions for OJ allegedly committing spousal abuse. He was found guilty on spousal abuse after he pled no contest. Preliminary hearing. On June 20th, Simpson was arraigned and pled not guilty to both murders and was held without bail. The following day, a grand jury was called to determine whether to indict him for the two murders, but he was dismissed on June 23rd. As a result of excessive media coverage that could have influenced its neutrality instead, authorities held a probable cause hearing to determine whether or not to bring Simpson to trial. California Superior Court Judge Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled on on July 7th that there was sufficient evidence to bring Simpson to trial for the murders. At his second arraignment on July 22nd, when asked how he pleaded to the murders, Simpson firmly stated, absolutely, 100%, 
not guilty theory. Prosecution argued that the domestic violence within Simpson and Brown's marriage culminated in her murder. Simpson's history of abusing Brown resulted in their divorce and him pleading guilty to one count of domestic violence in 1989. On the night of the murder, Simpson attended a dance recital for his daughter and was reportedly angry with Brown because of the black dress she wore, which he said was, quote, tight. Simpson's then-girlfriend, Paula Barbieri, wanted to attend the recital with Simpson, but he did not invite her. After the recital, Simpson returned home to a voicemail from Barbieri ending their relationship. According to prosecution, Simpson then drove over to Brown's home in his Ford Bronco to reconcile their relationship, and when Brown refused, Simpson killed her in the, quote, final act of control. Goldman then came upon the scene to return some eyeglasses and was murdered as well in order to silence him and remove any witnesses. Afterwards, prosecution said Simpson walked to his Bronco and went home, where he parked it and walked into his house. There, he took off his blood-stained clothes and put them in a knapsack except his socks and glove put clean ones on and left towards the limousine at the airport prosecution said that simpson opened the knapsack removed the clothes his bruno magley shoes and the murder weapon and threw them in the trash before putting them in the knapsack in one of his suitcases and headed towards his flight timeline. Los Angeles County Chief Medical Examiner testified on June 14, 1995 that Brown's time of death was estimated between 10 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Cato Kalin testified that on March 22, 1995, the last time he saw Simpson at 9.36 p.m. that evening, Simpson was not seen again until 10.45 p.m. when he answered the intercom at the front door for the limousine driver, Alan Park. Simpson had no alibi for approximately one hour and 18 minutes during which time the murders took place. Alan Park testified on March 28th that he arrived at Simpson's home at 10.25 p.m. on the night of the murders and stopped at the Rockingham entrance. Simpson's Bronco was not there. He then drove over to Ashford entrance and rang the intercom three times, getting no answer. Starting at 10.40 p.m. at approximately 9.50 p.m., he saw a tall African-American shadowy figure resembling Simpson approach the front door before a boarding towards the southern walkway that leads to Kalen's bungalow. Park's testimony was significant because it explained the location of the glove found at Simpson's home. The blood trail from the Bronco to the front door was easily understood, but the glove was found on the other side of the house. Park said the shadowy figure initially approached the front door before heading down the southern walkway, which leads to where the glove was found by Furman. The prosecution believed that Simpson had driven his Bronco to and from Brown's home to commit the murders, saw that Park was there, and aborted his attempt to enter through the front door and tried to enter through the back instead. He panicked and made sounds that Kalen heard when he realized the security system would not let him in through the rear entrance. He then discarded one glove, came back, went through the front door, and during cross-examination, Park conceded that he could not identify the figure, but said he saw the person enter the front door, and afterwards Simpson answered and said he was home alone. Park conceded that he did not notice any cuts on Simpson's left hand, but added, I shook his right hand, not his left. DNA Evidence and Probability prosecution presented a total of 108 exhibits, including 61 drops of blood of DNA evidence allegedly linking Simpson to the murders. With no witnesses to the crime, the prosecution was dependent on DNA as the only physical evidence linking Simpson to the crime. The volume of DNA evidence in the case was unique, and the prosecution believed they could reconstruct how the crime was committed with enough accuracy to resemble an eyewitness account. Marsha Clark stated in her opening statements that there was a trail of blood 
blood from the Bundy crime scene through Simpson's Ford Bronco to his bedroom in Rockingham. Simpson's DNA found on the blood drops next to the bloody footprint near the victims at Bundy crime scene. Probability of error was 1 in 9.7 billion. Simpson's DNA found on the blood trails leading away from the victims towards the back of gate at Bundy's. Probability of error was 1 in 200. Simpson's DNA found on the trail of blood drops leading away from the victims towards and on the back gate at Bundy. Probability of error was 1 in 200. Simpson's DNA found on the trail of blood drops leading away from the victims towards the back of the house. Probability error was 1 in 200. Simpson, Goldman, and Brown's DNA found on the blood outside the door and inside Simpson's Bronco. Probability error was 1 in 21 billion. Simpson DNA found on the blood drops leading from the area where his Bronco was parked at Simpson's Rockingham home to the front entrance. Simpson, Brown, and Goldman's DNA on the bloody glove found behind his home. Simpson and Brown's DNA found on blood on a pair of socks in Simpson's bedroom. Probability error was 1 one in 6.8 billion. DNA evidence and probability. Hair and fiber evidence. LAPD criminalist and hair expert Susan Brockbank testified on June 27, 1995, and FBI special agent and fiber expert Derek Diedrich testified on June 29, 1995, to the following findings. The fibers from the glove found at Simpson's home microscopically matched the one found at the crime scene, proving they are each other's mate. Both victims, the two gloves, and the blue-knit cap worn by the killer had hair consistent with Simpson. The hair in the blue-knit cap worn by the killer was embedded in the seams, indicating from being worn repeatedly. Dark blue cotton clothing fibers were found on both victims. The video from the dance recital that Simpson attended earlier in the night shows him wearing a similarly colored shirt. Cato Kalen testified that when Simpson was still wearing the shirt when they got home from McDonald's, but not anymore when he answered the door for the limousine driver. The police searched his home, but the shirt was never found. Hair consistent with Goldman was found on Brown, and clothing fibers consistent with Brown was found on Goldman. This supported the prosecution's theory that the assailant killed Brown first, then Goldman, and then afterwards returned to Brown to cut her throat. The hair consistent with Brown that was found on the Rockingham glove was torn, which also supports the prosecution claim that the killer grabbed Brown by her hair to cut her throat. Fibers that were used only in 1993-94 model of a Ford Bronco, the same color, the same car that Simpson owns, were found on both victims the knit cap and both gloves. The glove found at Simpson's home that belonged to the murderer had hair and clothing fibers consistent with Simpson, Brown and Goldman, as well as the fibers from 1993 to 1994, Ford Bronco, and Brown's Akita dog. The defense case. Simpson hired a team of high-profile defense lawyers, initially led by Robert Shapiro, who was previously a civil lawyer known for settling and subsequently by Johnny Cochran, who at that point was known for police brutality and civil rights cases. The team included noted defense attorney Effley Bailey, Robert Kardashian, Harvard Appeals lawyer Alan Dershowitz, his brother Robert Blazer, and Dean of Santa Clara University School of Law Gerald Ullman. Assistant Cochran were Carl E. Douglas, 
Sean Holly, Barry Sheck, and Peter Newfield. They headed the Innocence Project and specialized in DNA evidence. Simpson's defense was said to cost between $3 million and $6 million. The media dubbed this group of talented attorneys the Dream Team, while the taxpayer cost the prosecution was over $9 million. Theory The defense team's reasonable doubt theory was summarized as, quote, compromise contaminated, corrupted in opening statements. They argued the DNA evidence against Simpson was compromised by mishandling of criminalist Dennis Fung and Andrea Mazzolo during the collection phase of evidence gathering and that 100% of the quote real killers DNA had vanished from the evidence samples. The evidence was then contaminated in the LA crime lab by the criminalist Colin Yamamuchi and Simpson's DNA from his reference file was transferred to all but three exhibits. The remaining three exhibits were planted by the police and thus corrupted by f- police fraud. The defense questioned the timeline, claiming the murders happened around 11 p.m. that night. On June 15, 1995, Christopher Darden surprised Marcia Clark by asking Simpson to try on the gloves found at the crime scene and at his home. The prosecution had earlier decided against asking Simpson to try them on because they had been soaked in blood from Simpson, Brown, and Goldman and frozen and unfrozen several times. Instead, they presented a witness who tested that Brown had purchased a pair of these gloves in the same size in 1990 at Bloomingdale's for Simpson along with a receipt and a photo during the trial of Simpson earlier wearing the same type of gloves. The leather gloves appeared too tight for Simpson to put on easily, especially over the latex gloves he wore underneath. Clark claimed that Simpson was acting when he appeared to be struggling to put the gloves on, yet Cochran replied, I don't think he could act the size of his hand. Darden then told Edo of his concerns that Simpson has, quote, arthritis, and we looked at his medication he takes and some of it's anti-inflammatory, and we were told he has not taken the stuff for a day, and it caused swelling in the joints and inflammation in his hands. Cochran informed Ito the next day that Sean Chapman contacted the Los Angeles County Jail doctor, who confirmed Simpson was taking arthritis medication every day, and that the jail's medical records verified this. Yulman came up with, and Cochran repeated, a quip used in his closing arguments. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The prosecution stated they believed the glove shrank from having been soaked in blood of the victims. Richard Rubin, former vice president of the glove maker Isotoner Incorporated, which makes the gloves in question, testified on September 12, 1995, that the gloves had indeed shrunk from their original size. Darden produced a new pair of the same type of gloves which fit Simpson when he tried them on. After the trial, Cochran revealed that Bailey had goaded Darden into asking Simpson to try on the gloves, and that Shapiro had told Simpson in advance how to uh, how to give the appearance as if they didn't fit. The verdict. Fears grew that race riots similar to the riots in 1992 would erupt across Los Angeles and the rest of the country if Simpson were convicted of all the murders. As a result, The Los Angeles police officers were put on 12-hour shifts. The police arranged for more than 100 police officers on horseback to surround the Los Angeles County Courthouse on the day of the verdict was announced. In the case of rioting by the crowd, President Bill Clinton was briefed on security measures if rioting were to occur nationwide. The only testimony that the jury reviewed was that of the limo driver, Park. At 10.07 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3, 1995, Simpson was acquitted on both counts of murder. 
jury arrived at the verdict by 3 p.m. on October 2nd after four hours of deliberation, but it postponed the announcement. After the verdict was read, juror number 9, 44-year-old Lionel Cryer, gave Simpson a black power raised fist salute. The New York Times reported that Cryer was a former member of the revolutionary nationalist Black Panther Party that prosecutors had, quote, inexplicably left on the panel. An estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict's announcement. Long-distance telephone call volume decreased by 58%. And trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange decreased by 41%. Water usage, as people avoided using the bathrooms, so much work stopped that the verdict cost an estimated $480 million in lost productivity. The U.S. Supreme Court received a message on the verdict during oral arguments with the justices quietly passing the note to each other while listening to the attorney's presentation, The Aftermath, If I Did It. In November of 2006, a book ghostwritten by Pablo Feinvez based on interviews with Simpson titled, If I Did It, an account which the publisher said was a, quote, hypothetical confession. The book's release was planned to coincide with a Fox special featuring Simpson. On November 20th, News Corporation canceled the project due to public criticism. Later, the Goldman family was awarded the rights to the book and published it under the title, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. On March 11, 2018, Fox broadcast Simpson's previously unaired interview in a special titled, O.J. Simpson, The Lost Confession. The interview was interrupted as being a form of implied confession because Simpson used first-person language, I must have, in explaining how he committed the murders. Civil Trial In 1996, Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, the parents of Ron Goldman and Lou Brown, father of Nicole Brown, filed a civil suit against Mr. Simpson for wrongful death. The plaintiffs were represented by Daniel Petroselli and Simpson by Robert Baker. Presiding Judge Hiroshi Fujisaki did not allow the trial to be televised, did not sequester the jury, and prohibited the defense from alleging racism by the LAPD and condemning the crime lab. The physical evidence did not change but additional evidence of domestic violence was presented as well as, as a 31 pre-1994 photos of Simpson wearing Bruno Magli shoes. Results from a polygraph test that Simpson denied taking showed, quote, extreme deception when he denied committing the murders. Furman did not testify, but Simpson did on his own behalf and lied several times. The jury found Simpson liable for the murders and awarded the victims' families $33.5 million in compensation and punitive to damages. Simpson filed for bankruptcy afterwards and relocated to Florida to protect his pension from seizure. His remaining assets were seized and auctioned off, with most being purchased by critics of the verdict of the criminal trial to help the plaintiffs recoup the cost of litigation. Simpson's Heisman Trophy was sold for $255,500 to an undisclosed buyer. All the proceeds went to the Goldman family, who said they had only received 1% of the money that Simpson owes the wrongful death suit. Alternative Theories and Suspects According to O.J. Made in America, director Ezra Edelman, no plausible alternative theory has emerged since the trial. Such theories have been rejected by the trial's participants, with Hunt opening that these claims were attempts to tap into the public interest in the case and were never meant to be taken seriously. William Deere published O.J. is Innocent and I Can Prove It, which was adapted into the BBC documentary O.J. The True Untold 
told story, the documentary primarily rehashes contamination blood planning claims for the trial and asserted that Simpson's elder son, Jason, is the possible suspect. Alternative theories for the murders have suggested they were related to the Los Angeles drug trade and the murders of Michael Nigg and Brett Cantor. In 2012, the documentary film My Brother the Serial Killer alleged convicted murderer Glenn Edward Rogers confessed to being involved in the murders and claimed he had been hired by Simpson to do it. The families of Brown and Goldman dismissed its claims and accused Henry Sheaf of investigation discovery of irresponsibility. He replied that he believed Simpson was guilty and the documentary's intention was to not prove Rogers committed the crimes. The Los Angeles Robbery on the night of September 13, 2007, a group of men led by Simpson entered a room at the Palace Station Hotel Casino and took sports memorabilia at gunpoint, which resulted in Simpson being questioned by the police. Simpson admitted to taking the items, which he said had been stolen from him, but denied breaking into the hotel. He also denied that he or anyone else carried a gun. He was released after questioning. Simpson faced possible life sentence with parole on the kidnapping charge and a mandatory prison time for armed robbery. December 5th, 2008, Simpson was sentenced to a total of 33 years in prison with the possibility of parole after nine. In 2017, on September 4, 2009, the Nevada Supreme Court denied a request for bail during Simpson's appeal. In October 2010, the Nevada Supreme Court affirmed his convictions. He served his sentence at the Lovelock Correctional Center, where his inmate ID number was 1027820. Release from Prison on July 31, 2013, the Nevada Parole Board granted Simpson parole on the convictions, but his imprisonment continued based on the weapons and assault convictions. The board considered Simpson's prior record of criminal convictions. The board considered Simpson's prior record of criminal convictions and good behavior in prison coming to the decision. At his parole hearing on July 20, 2017, the board decided to grant Simpson parole with certain parole conditions such as travel restrictions, non-contact with the co-defendants from the robbery, and not drinking excessively. He was released October 1, 2017, having served almost nine years. On December 14, 2021, Simpson was released from parole early due to good behavior. Releasing him from the previous conditions of his release were effectively making him a completely free man. Because he was found not guilty, he can no longer be tried again due to double jeopardy. Will the murders of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson ever be solved, or will it continue to remain a mystery? For the Aftermath, I'm your host, Daniel Hudson. See you soon. Mm-hmm.